Hello everyone, Sława Bogom and welcome in the 12th episode of Searching for the Slavic Soul. Today we are going to be talking about the Slavic Hell, which kind of did not exist, but also kind of did exist. Still, <laughs> we're going to be talking about it. We are also going to mention torture and oaths and vaccinations and corporations and how not to be an a-hole and uh, if it all sounds interesting just keep listening so hell and slavs as much as both don't go together and really have nothing to do with each other Today we are going to be talking about it, because this is what we do in Vitya's project. Well, actually, no, I mean, in Vitya's project, we do talk about things that don't go together very well, mostly about Judeo-Christian and pagan, which for obvious reasons don't go together at all. But the reason we are talking about hell and slavs today is actually the current socio-political situation in Poland which inspired this episode of Searching for the Slavic Soul. Currently in Poland there is a huge rebellion going on. The Polish government, which is very conservative, very right-wing and very friendly with Polish Catholic Church, the government decided to introduce a new law which further restricts already very strict anti-abortion laws in Poland. This decision of Polish government resulted in huge opposition of the whole Polish society and that in turn resulted in huge strikes and demonstrations going on in pretty much every part of Poland because Polish society is fed up with how conservative, right-wing and Catholic the Polish government is, and many people who participate in the anti-government demonstrations, they also make a decision to officially leave the Polish Catholic Church. And therefore, currently in Poland, there is a huge increase of apostasy. Apostasy in general is an act of renunciating a religion, in case of Polish Catholic Church, it's the act of leaving the Catholicism or in general the Christian religion. And the, the, the recent spike in apostasy in Poland got some people worried because as those people claim, without the Christian or Judeo-Christian tradition and values guiding people, we will all and by we, I mean, I mean, they mean the concerned parties. <laughs> they mean that the pagan or atheist or in general, any people who decide that they don't believe in Judeo-Christian God don't want to have anything to do with their religion. And generally, as they say in Poland, wypierdalać which is a very bad word, but hopefully as English speakers you won't understand it, so I won't beep it out. And if you understand it, well, good for you. You can look it up on YouTube or any social media and see for yourself how frequently it's currently used in Poland to tell the government what people think about it. Anyway, 
Where was I? Wypierdalać. Uh, apostasy. People were leaving Catholicism or Christianity or in general the Judeo-Christian religion like en masse, like, you know, people committing apostasy in numbers never seen before, at least not in Poland. And many more people who just, well, don't actually, you know, do the, apost do the official leaving of the church, don't like do the official apostasy, but just don't just stop going to church. Stop reading Bible, stop ca caring about so-called Christian values. And the trend in Poland, and actually in the world in general, it kind of gets some people worried because apparently without the Ten Commandments and the Bible, we, the humans, cannot really conduct ourselves properly and without, without Jesus or Yahweh or Allah guiding us, we will just, you know, fall into a moral and unethical chaos. So, hearing the voices of the concerned, which for some reason seem to be mostly voices of middle-aged, well-off and well-connected males, who, when we talk about the current situation in Poland, will never and have never needed abortion, yet for some reason those concerned middle-aged, well-off males think that they know better what more vulnerable people with uteruses need and what they should do, but that's a different story and I'm not even going to go there. So, back to the topic. Hearing the voices of the concerned middle-aged people, concerned Judeo-Christians, I started to wonder what can those very concerned and very wise and very obviously sophisticated and educated and what do these people actually know about history of the humankind if they are convinced that without Judeo-Christian values, the humanity will just completely disintegrate ethically and morally and, you know, in every other aspect of humanity? Because the Judeo-Christian tradition, the Abrahamic religions, they are only like 4,000 years old. And the history of humanity started something like 200,000 years ago. So for vast, vast majority of our existence as a species, we, the humans, we did know a single thing about Bible and Jesus and the Ten Commandments. And somehow we actually managed not to kill each other. We managed to build civilizations. We managed to be, build empires. We managed to, you know, have trade. We managed to invent philosophy, medicine, mathematics, even like elements of, you know, basic physics and biology. We as species managed to build pyramids and the rest of the original seven wonders of the ancient world. We managed to build libraries and schools and, you know, create laws. Somehow, without the guidance of the Judeo-Christian tradition, we manage not to fall into chaos and, you know, the scene, as Judeo-Christians call it. So today, we are going to try and figure out what stopped the original pre-Christian Slavs from falling into chaos 
and scene and you know whatever you want to call it what was the glue of the pagan slavic society and what made our ancestors let's let's call it what made them behave what were the sticks and what were the carrots that regulated the society of pre-christian slavs the most obvious thing that must have influenced how our pagan ancestors behaved were their laws the laws which actually we know quite well because those laws founded and followed by the pagan slavs were after the christianization of the land of our ancestors were incorporated into the legal codices written mostly by the educated christian monks and some of those legal codices survived until now so we can read them now and we from reading them we can learn about the legal concepts of the pagan lawmakers so if you read into the if you read into the early medieval legal codices you will very quickly notice a huge difference between the medieval and the modern ways of delivering justice in modern times the law obviously the law of a secular and democratic country does not treat a suspect like he or she was guilty the 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 punishment be it a, a fine or a prison sentence or even in some countries death sentence is not imposed on people suspected of committing a crime only on people who have been found guilty in the court of law so if you're thinking about committing a crime nowadays in 21st century your main concern or maybe one of your concerns i don't know if it's a main concern i'm not really sure how criminals reason <laughs> well anyway I, a person who wants to commit or plans to commit a crime doesn't want to be caught and therefore puts effort into not leaving evidence of committing this crime or the planned crime but in medieval ages it wasn't that easy in order to be punished and it what's important to know here in medieval ages pretty much all punishments were corporal punishments so it was really a type of torture all of it so in order to avoid a form of torture <laughs> a person who wanted to or planned to commit a crime did not have to worry about not getting caught but also they had to worry about not being suspected of committing a crime because the punishment the torture was delivered not only to those who were found guilty of committing a crime but also to those who were suspected of committing it the the reason for that is that in medieval ages there was something called a trial by ordeal the trial by ordeal was a type or, of evidentiary hearing it was held in situations where when the guilt or innocence of the person suspected of committing a crime could not be established based on physical evidence or, or testimony of a witness or witnesses for example um, if a horse was stolen and there wasn't a single witness of that theft and neither there was uh, convincing physical evidence 
indicating who stole this horse, but the owner of the horse or another member of the community had reasons to suspect that the theft was committed by, let's say, you know, his neighbor, then it was within the rights of the owner of the horse to accuse the neighbor of the theft and expect the court or other type of adjudicating body, which in the case of pre-Christian Slavs typically was a council of elders. So the council of elders had to hear the case only because the owner of the stolen horse accused his neighbor of it, of stealing the horse, of the theft. Even if there was no physical evidence, no witnesses, nothing really to base the accusation on, the court still had to hear the case just because the owner of the stolen horse was suspecting somebody of this theft. So, with no witnesses and no evidence, the court or the council of elders had to employ another way of establishing the innocence or guilt of the accused. And this is when the trial by ordeal was applied. It was applied to provide an evidence of guilt or innocence. The trial of ordeal was pretty much a legal form of torture. Depending on the type of crime, different type of ordeal was used. Uh, There was an ordeal of water, where water was used to torture the accused. The water could be cold and used to drown the accused, for example, uh, like, you know, in a river or a lake, or it could be boiling and used to scald the accused. If cold water was used, the accused was submerged in a stream or a lake for a given amount of time. And if he or she drowned, it meant that he or she was guilty. If boiling water was used, the suspect was made to for example, submerge a part of the body, a hand, for example, into a cauldron with boiling water and guilt or or innocence was established based on how the wounds healed. Alternatively, the suspect was made to retrieve an object from the bottom of a pot of boiling water and if he or she managed to do it, it meant they were innocent. They were also ordeals by fire where the suspects were burned by torches or, for example, were made to walk on red-hot iron. In uh, these type of trials, the, the guilt of or the innocence was judged by either how the wounds healed or based on whether or not the suspect could walk on this red-hot iron or not. Another type of trial by ordeal was by ingestion, where food, for example, like bread, dry bread, was like forced down the suspect's throat. And if the suspect choked, he or she was obviously guilty. All those trials were used to establish the guilt or the innocence. And after the guilt was established, after, you know, this all this torture, <laughs> uh, the 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 suspect was now kind of considered guilty of committing a crime and had to take the punishment for the crime. You know, like you would expect in medieval ages, the punishment for the crime was also a form of torture. So it could be an amputation, a amputation of part of a body. So like, you know, 
chopping off a finger or an arm or you know nose or ear uh, flogging was also commonly used punishment and in some cases obviously the punishment was death as well and the death punishment uh, was also often kind of you know delivered through torture <laughs> it was just terrible back then basically it really wasn't nice to be suspected suspected of committing a crime in the medieval ages because if you were suspected it was pretty much guaranteed that regardless of whether you are guilty or innocent you still had to endure some form of torture there was only two ways to avoid being tortured as a person suspected of committing a crime so one way was that you could admit to committing this crime so you could plead guilty if you pled guilty you still had to endure the punishment for the crime but at least it was only one round of torture not two the other way of avoiding being put through a trial of by ordeal was to present a witness to vouch for your innocence obviously it could not just be any witness it had to be a person respected in the community uh, someone who you know we sometimes call these people a pillar of the community which back in the medieval ages uh, and uh, among the pagans it actually meant it but i will get back to this later anyway well if you did not want to be tortured you had to find someone respected someone worthy and of prominence in your community and this person had to under oath so taking the gods themselves for witnesses this person had to swear that you are innocent and you did not commit the crime you were accused of and finding such person wasn't actually that easy because the original slavic pagans did not like taking oaths they avoided it if they only could because at it, as it was described by a chronicle called helmond they were worried of the consequences of taking oaths where gods were summoned to witness these oaths because as i've already said many times in the previous episodes contrary to what many rodnovery preachers would have you believe the original pre-christian slavs they actually avoided calling upon gods like they avoided fire they prayed to the gods only when they absolutely had to they asked for god's help or advice only when they really really had no choice and they took oaths in god's name only if they were 100 percent sure that the oath is true and it will not be broken so it looks like one does not need the ten commandments and the guidance of a local vicar to behave like a decent human being one does not have to believe in Judeo-Christian hell or know the concept of sin to not to break the laws that rule the society. The pagan legal system in itself was quite an efficient way to make people behave in a socially acceptable way and what more, want to be seen as decent members of the society. 
because in the communities of our ancestors, one really truly needed to have good relationship with others and act in a way to not to even be suspected of committing a crime, let alone being found guilty of it. Because in the society of our ancestors, being suspected was enough to be tortured. And if we add to it the fact that only support and friendship of a respected member of the community could prevent the suspect from being tortured, that was another way of motivating the pagans to be kind to each other, to not to be a-holes, to make, keep and nurture real deep friendships and relationships within the community which really is something we could all benefit from doing with or without the stick of torture motivating us into building such relationships. So the pagan laws were without a doubt one thing that made our ancestors behave in a quote-unquote not sinful manner, but a part of the laws created for and by humans, they were also laws of gods, the rules of interacting with the reality, with, with the universe itself. Such rules were a result of our ancestors' system of beliefs and they were followed by pre-Christian Slavs with the sole purpose in mind. They were followed to protect the stability and the order of the whole world, or perhaps the whole universe. One of such law was the rule of upholding the oaths, which also included being truthful while under oath. Basically, we know that the pre-Christian Slavs were reluctant to take oaths because they believed that oaths are very, very important. One reason they believed that was because they did not want to anger the gods. So, as I said many times before, our ancestors respected their gods, saw them as very powerful beings and did not bother them every five seconds or however many times a day many modern Rodnovers want to say their prayers. So, our ancestors did not want to anger the gods by calling the gods to witness or enforce an oath that was not important or was not true. They also did not want to anger other supernatural powers like the fire or water or earth, which sometimes they also swore by. Another reason our ancestors were reluctant to take oaths is because they believed that the oaths are kind of pillars supporting and holding up the universe. The pre-Christian Slavs built their word upon the strength of their oaths. And therefore, they needed the oaths to be solid, to be true, and not to be corrupt. Because otherwise the oaths, the pillar of the world or the universe, would not be strong enough to support the whole system. And, and now, if you look at the etymology of the word oath in Slavic languages, in all modern Slavic languages, the word oath, so in Polish, for example, this word is przysięga and in Russian is prisiaga. They sound very similar and it comes. they come from a proto-Slavic word prisienga. Um, I hope I pronounce it right. 
by the way, I will pull links to all of these, the, all of these etymological kind of ling linguistic stuff uh, for this episode in the notes for this episode. So you can check for yourself that I don't make this stuff up. So the, the Proto-Slavic word for oath developed when all the Slavs spoke one language. So roughly like 2000 years ago and the word stayed in pretty much, pretty much unchanged form until modern times. And if you look at the etymology of Proto-Slavic prisienga, so an oath, you'll see that it has common roots with another Proto-Slavic word, sengati, which means to reach or to attain. And now, that all makes complete sense if you look at how pre-Christian Slavs took oaths. When they wanted to take an oath, they reached out to fire or water or to earth or to a representation of a god or gods, so to a statue of a god or gods, and by reaching to the element or the god, the representation of god, they kind of reached out and attained the power of this element or God to support the oath, to make the oath stronger and more solid. So the pagan oath, the words of a pagan oath, they were not just some words spoken out for fun or whatever reason. The pagan oath was a way of attaining the power of a god to strengthen and support the reality, the world our ancestors lived in. Because if a respected member of community, so a pillar of this community, if this person swore that you were not a murderer, in reality, it really, really meant that you were not a murderer. So, after such oath was taken and said, all the community could sleep well and safe because they knew that there isn't any murderer in their midst. Or, if, for example, a kniaz, so a Slavic prince, swore an oath while making peace with the neighboring tribe, this very oath was the guarantee of the peace. So, the very fact that the peace treaty was sworn, the fact that an oath was taken to uphold the peace, it made the end of the war real. It made it happen. It meant that the trade could be re-established that fields could be cultivated safely, that there won't be any armies destroying or pillaging anymore. The oath made the war end. The oath, as well as the people who took it, were the pillars of the universe bringing stability and predictability and order. And now, it might not be easy to understand for modern people that uh, just a few spoken words made the reality, were the pillars of reality for our ancestors. So, to give you an idea of how it worked, I'm going to use an example of scientific research, which nowadays has the same power that 
oaths had for our ancestors. Because, you know, we all believe in science, don't we? We use cars and microwaves, we fly by planes, because, you know, science works. We might not understand how a car works or how a plane flies, but we know it does work. We don't worry, or at least most of us, the majority of us who does not have phobias, we don't worry too much that a car is going to burst in flames or that a plane will fall down from the sky or that you know, <laughs> a microwave will explode. We know it's not going to happen because science works and science tells us and reassures us that if it's say it is safe to dry or fly or to use a microwave but imagine what would happen if science did not work sadly you don't actually have to imagine it i'm going to tell you exactly what happened and what is happening still when science is not true when it's falsified so when it doesn't actually work in this way, I'm going to show you what happens when an oath is broken. I am going to use an example of a guy called Andrew Wakefield, who was a physician. He was a, a physician. He was a doctor. Well, he, he's still alive, but he's not a doctor anymore because he got struck off. Hence, I said he was. Anyway... This Wakefield person, once upon a time, he was a doctor, like a medical doctor. Because he was a doctor, after the, he graduated from a medical school, he took an oath, a medical oath, also known as a Hippocratic oath. And he swore to do no harm and to put the well-being of his patients first above any other considerations. After a few years of being a doctor, he decided that sticking to this oath he took doesn't actually pay very well, so he decided to break it. And in 1995, after getting in touch with some lawyers, Wakefield decided to falsify his research on autism. So the deal was that the lawyers would pay Wakefield for proving that MMR vaccine causes autism and Wakefield obliged. For money, he not only falsified the result of his research, but also put the subject of his research, the autistic children, he put them through invasive procedures such as colonoscopies and colon biopsies and spinal taps and he did it all with the consent of the parents who I don't even know what these parents thought to take money to put your children through painful procedures in a bogus research. I am a parent and I know there is so there is just no money on the planet that would make me do it. But uh, well, those parents, they consented. Uh, they consented for Wakefield to perform illegal experiments on their children and the results of these illegal experiments were then falsified to quote unquote prove that vaccination were harmful and the results like you know quote unquote results of these experiments were also used by the lawyers to sue 
the manufacturers of the vaccinations, so the pharmaceutical companies, and through litigation uh, to gain compensation money. And some of the money went to the lawyers, some went to the parents, and some went to Wakefield, and you know, everyone was very happy. So much happiness built on a lie and a broken oath. Uh, it wouldn't actually be a big problem if Wakefield's research wasn't also published in a scientific paper uh, printed by a scientific journal called The Lancet. So, after the publication in The Lancet, the, the scientific world kind of started questioning the research of Wakefield's research and actually quite quickly verified it as bogus. Um, obviously, Wakefield was struck off. Uh, MMR vaccinations were once more confirmed to be safe and effective, but the harm could actually not really be undone because up to this day, people believe in Wakefield's bogus research, despite it being refuted and proven false on like numerous and countless occasions. People still believe it. Only last year, over 200,000 unvaccinated children died of measles. So only last year, the life of 200,000 children literally ended because of one broken oath that was broken in 1995 by, by Wakefield, so, you know, over 20 years ago. Wakefield broke the oath, he published the false results of bogus research for money, and people's lives are still falling apart 20 years later. Because, you know, it's not only about the unvaccinated children who died of measles. Every single one of those children had parents. Some of them had siblings. And those parents and siblings, their life also has just completely collapsed. Their lives will never be the same. Never. They had a world. They had their little universe full of love and happiness and hopes for the future. and. Poof! It all went up in flames and collapsed because one of the pillars of those little words was false. It was not true. It was a lie. It was a broken oath. It was one false scientific paper that ruined those people, those people's lives. They believed it, they believed in it, they believed that the vaccination is going to cause autism in their children, so they did not have their children vaccinated, and because the children were not vaccinated, they were not immune to the virus, and they caught the virus, and then they died. And, you know, I bet um, a lot of you from time to time hears all these you know, preachers telling us how the world is falling apart because we lose faith and, you know, reject the Judeo-Christian God and we are sinners. And it's, you know, the God's punishment that causes our world to spiral down into chaos. But I kind of think that those preachers miss the point because how can we expect a world to last if it's built on lies? It just can happen. We lie, we are lied to, 
Nobody believes anybody. And don't take me wrong with a very good reason. <laughs> because oaths nowadays don't mean anything. We promise things to our children and don't deliver. We take marital oaths, professional oaths, and we break them. Our chosen representatives like MPs or senators or presidents, they all take oaths with pretty much the purpose of breaking it. Slavs knew better. Pagans knew better. They built their world on solid foundation of truthful and kept oaths. They didn't make promises lightly. They avoided taking, taking oaths if they could, but if they had to, if they swore something, they stuck to it. They kept it, they held it up because they knew that it is the keeper of the promise who is the pillar of the word. They knew what we so often forget. It is the humans who build and take responsibility for our world. It's not up to the governments or corporations to keep order in justice. It's up to us. It's up to humans and not, you know, corporate entities to take responsibility for truth, to be righteous, to be worthy and, and to uphold our oaths and through them to stop our world from falling into chaos. So far, in fighting of the chaos, we have two sticks that kept our ancestors on the straight and the narrow. We have the laws of humans, we have the laws of the gods, and there is also a third element too. And this element is the laws of the afterlife, which I th thought every Rodnover knew, but as the social media that... <laughs> It seems the social media never let me down. So <laughs> the social media informed me that not all Rodnovers know about Slavic afterlife. So therefore, I'm going to present the topic very briefly. Uh, if you know all of this, please do not be offended. Don't think I treat you like an idiot or patronize you or whatever. I'm just trying to make sure we are all on the same page here. So Slavic afterlife very quickly. Pre-Christian Slavs, our ancestors, they believed that, that the living lived in Yavia, which is the material world, and the spirits lived in Navia, so the world of the dead, or the death, however you want to look at it. And, you know, Yavia, so the world of the living, was the right place for the living, and Navia was the right place for the dead. But in order to go from Yavia to Navia after you died, you needed a proper funeral ritual to be performed on your body. So basically, your quote-unquote future after death really depended on, depended on whether the living felt like to <laughs> giving you a proper funeral ritual or not. For most Slavs, the proper ritual was cremation, so I am kind of going to stick with that. So, if you were not cremated, but you just body was just left to rot, you typically turned into a demon, like a vampire or Jivožona or Topielec, 
All those demons were very dangerous, so the living Slavs tended to provide some sort of funeral rites for everybody, because obviously they did not want dead living in Yavia, because, you know, the dead in Yavia were demons, but actually not always. Sometimes the pagan Slavs did kind of use <laughs> their deceased to create demons, uh, for example, they quite often buried the bodies of young children or babies under the thresholds of their houses. Obviously, they did not kill the babies on purpose because in a way they, well, they actually didn't have to because in medieval ages, the mortality under, under five years of age was just huge. So pretty much, you know, if you needed a dead baby or a young child, they you didn't really have to wait very long for one. It's absolutely, it's absolutely horrendous, you know. The, back then, the children were just dying, dropping off like flies. It's absolutely terrifying when you read or think about it, but, well, this is how it was back then. So anyway, if it was not unusual for pagan Slavs to bar, bury a body of a child under the threshold of their house, and the purpose of this burial was to create a protective spirit for the house. So, soul of the dead child, without the body being cremated, it, it became trapped in the walls of the house in Yavia. Uh, the, the soul could not travel to Yavia, but had to stay among the living and kind of guard the house. So really, um, if you were a pagan Slavs, you really, really had to have a proper funeral ritual and you wanted to be cremated because then you could only then you could travel to Navia. It was the only way for you not to become a demon and not to become trapped among the living. So Navia was the right place for the dead. So you went there if you died and if you were cremated. Uh, when you were actually when you were in Avia, we not really sure what was happening to you. Some claim you existed there in a form of a bird. Some claim that Veles shepherded you and all other souls, and or maybe that you know you kind of just dissolved in the in the nameless crowd of the ancestors. But whatever you did in Navia, however you spent your time there, you kind of needed the living members of the family to remember you in order to be happy there. Because the living members of your family were the ones who fed you. Uh, you know, they, they summoned you from Navia to Yavia during Jade ritual and other rituals of like, you know, the veneration of the ancestor kind of rituals. They invited you for a feast and they talked to you. So that was, you know, food and entertainment for the dead. But if your family did not remember about you or did not want to remember about you and you didn't get invited for the Feast of Jade, then when in Navia, you really did not have a very good time. You were hungry, for starters. You did not have anyone to talk to. There wasn't any news coming from, you know, the family, from your loved ones. There was no entertainment, no warmth of the holy fire. There was just nothing. So your life after death depended on the living. And this is why 
when you are alive, it was really, really worth it to make friends with people and particularly with your family and particularly those members of the family who are likely to outlive you. Because if you not treat your friends and family right, if those living people did not want to spend time with you when you were alive, it was pretty much certain that they will not spend want to spend time with you when you after you pass away, you know, when you were dead. And if they did not want to spend time with you when you were dead, you were stuck in Navia alone, bored, hungry, cold, and generally you didn't have very good afterlife so when alive you bloody cared you cared because literally your afterlife depended on having loving and caring family you needed these people to give you a proper funeral ritual and after that you needed them to invite you to jade so the to the ritual feast so you can eat and talk and sing and dance and warm up and, you know, use the afterlife properly. So, yeah, when you were a pagan without the Ten Commandments and a Bible, you still had to be a decent person. <laughs> Actually, you had even more reason to be a decent person or at least not to be an ass, like not to be an a-hole. You had to interact with people in a way that was kind and respectful. You needed the community to like you and you and value you because otherwise, if they did not like you, they could falsely accuse you of something. And then you had to go through torture to prove your innocence. If you were strong enough to survive the torture, obviously, you also needed uh, to have at least one respected and worthy friend, a proper pillar of the community to vouch for you if things went wrong. You absolutely had to keep an oath if you made one and if you cared about your afterlife at all, you had to make sure your family doesn't hate you. So, in pagan tradition, we have three backbones of the pagan ethics. It's not just two stone tablets with one set of rules. The pagan tradition has a proper system of three elements, the laws of humans, the laws of gods, and the laws of the afterlife. And those three elements that are independent but interconnected, they keep the whole ethical and moral system in place. The punishments, the sticks to make you behave, and the rewards, the carrots to make you want to behave. So, if you are scared of pagan path because of the chaos, don't be. It's not chaotic at all. And if you're already on the pagan Slavic path, you better pay attention to all of the three elements. Because, you know, the modern laws are not as severe as the medieval laws, but the modern laws, let me stress here, the laws of secular and democratic countries. So the laws of modern secular countries, they are made and designed to protect humans' rights. So, because of that, they are very useful tool for us, the pagans, to interact with the society. 
if you follow the laws of modern, secular and democratic countries, you stand a better chance to be respected and appreciated by the community. You also stand a better chance to have a family that wants to have anything to do with you because it's hard to have a loving family if you're in prison, for example. I mean, it's not impossible, but it's hard. So as a modern road novel, you, well, we all should follow the laws of the humans, of course, if you live, if we live in a secular democratic country, we should follow the laws of the universe. So always keep our promises and, and make sure that your family, particularly your children, don't hate you. So you won't get forgotten after you die. Nowadays, it's also extremely important to look after our planet and to care about the environment. Because, you know, if we kill the planet, our children won't live long enough to invite us for Jade after we die. If we kill our planet, there'll be no living. There'll be just the dead. And a Navia full of dead people with Yavia being completely devoid of life is really, really not a good place to spend the eternity in. I bet it's worse than hell, which obviously did not exist in Slavic culture, but kind of did. It, it was the hell of oblivion. And we all end up in this place if we don't stop killing our children and our future. And uh, that, that is all for today. I hope you enjoyed the episode as much as I enjoyed creating it, despite the dogs and the cats. <laughs> and uh, please, if there is something you did not like or did not understand, or if there is anything you want to tell us or ask us, just let us know. As always, you can contact us through our website, which is witia.squarespace.com. Um, so once more, witia.squarespace.com. Uh, you can contact us through our Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube channel or via email, which is witiadaboru at gmail.com. So that's w-i-t-i-a dot d-a-b-o-r-u gmail dot at gmail dot com. And I will link all the contact details in the notes of this podcast. Um, I also wanted to say a humongous thank you to those of you who already have contacted Pro the Vitia project for any reason. It is always awesome to hear from you. Every voice matters to us. Every voice is heard and considered and uh, it makes us happy. Thank you so very, very much for not only for listening, but also for letting us listen to you. Uh, and for now, uh, take care, look after yourself and after others and look after our planet. And uh, Suava, see you next time. Mm -hmm.